Hi, this is Esther, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Congratulations, Roseanne, on 100 episodes. Hello, dreamers. This is Rebecca over in bloody England, one of your admins of our amazing Facebook discussion group. On behalf of myself and the other group admins, Lisa J, Crystal M, Randy M, Kim H, Valerie J, Emily H, Jen T and Bonnie L, I'd like to send many congratulations to Roseanne on reaching the 100th episode of California Dreaming. Thank you for your hard work and dedication and for bringing love and respect to the victims of these true crime tales. We are excited for the next 100 episodes. Oh, and Fred is innocent. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. So my dreamers, here we are at episode 100 finally. It's taken a little more than two years, but we've officially made it to triple digits. Though, you know there is much, much more California dreaming out there than these 100 episodes, Those are just the official numbered ones. If you've been with us since the beginning, then you already know. Or if you are a brand new listener, then you will come to find that sprinkled throughout our catalog are a variety of bonus episodes, addendums, and things that are not officially numbered episodes, but additional content that I wanted or needed to include that didn't necessarily need to be given an official episode number. I keep a little journal where I jot down each episode and each bonus, as well as every unique Patreon episode, so I can keep a running total of how much content that we have out there. In addition to 100 full-length episodes, we have 56 bonuses in your feed, as well as 26 exclusive bonuses for Patreon supporters. And that doesn't include the early releases or the stuff that I post on Patreon, That's 26 unique stories if you subscribe to our Patreon, and most of them are available at all tier levels, starting at only a dollar a month. There are a couple that are for $5 and above, but if you support the show at any level, you are guaranteed one full-length bonus episode each month, and I do everything I can to make sure that bringing bonus content to those who keep the show going, and ad-free by the way, sponsored by nobody but us, doesn't interfere with our weekly show. The thing that normally interferes with the weekly content would be Fred. So anyway, 
You see, Dreamers, long before hosting this, I was a listener and occasionally I supported a few shows here and there on Patreon. And it gave me a little insight into the process and guided me on how I wanted our show to be. I always wanted us to have a show every week. There have been times when I've taken a break here or there for one reason or another, travel, holidays, personal reasons, getting sick or otherwise. But for the most part, we are together all year round. And I like that. When my favorite shows went on extended breaks between seasons, I really missed it. Of course, I understand the need for a break to take a few months off or whatever. People have other things they need to do. Breaks between seasons gives a host or hosts time to evaluate what they're doing. Sometimes they rebrand, sometimes they change their format, sometimes they don't come back. And I've come to find that I really don't need two months to reconfigure anything. If I need a break, I'll take one. Like, I'm most likely going to take a week off in August because my daughter's birthday. I might be starting a new part-time thing. And we're going to have some company in August, and it's just going to be overwhelming. But that's the beauty of what we have going on here. Because you know another episode will be right around the corner. And when it comes to Patreon, and I know I've been talking about it a lot, but I also want you to understand why I think it might be worth your time to take a look at it. But I wanted every patron to be able to take advantage of bonus content, no matter how much you're able to donate to the production of California Dreaming. There are some of you out there say that you really love 20 different shows and you really want to give back to each one of them. Are you going to be able to donate $5 to every single show that you love? Maybe some of you can, but most of us, and myself included, not so much. Even if you give a dollar to every show, that's still $20 a month. And not every show is going to make the bonus episode available to you at that tier. Some are going to require a certain level, maybe $3 or $5. And for some... That's just not reasonable when you want to support your show, especially if you want to support all of your favorites. Some offer ad-free content to patrons, but I don't have ads, so I don't have that to give you. But if you are willing to give our show $1, then the very least I can do is give you one bonus episode a month guaranteed. And if I have it in me, I'll put out a second bonus out there for those who donate at the $5 level and above. But no matter what, there will always be at least one for everybody. Is that good for business? Nah, maybe, maybe not. But I'm not a business person, and it's good for me. I've given $1, $2, $3, and received nothing, which is fine. If I like a show, I like a show, and I want to make a contribution. I just didn't want that for our show and our patrons. So if you are a new listener then you've got a catalog of 156 episodes to make your way through. And if you are a patron at the $1 level, then you've got another 23 or 24 episodes available to you as well. And that's 180 things to fill your ears for hours and hours. And I'm very proud of us for making it this far. So here's to the next 100. I also would like to quickly thank Esther and Rebecca for providing the two intros for this episode. I love you guys. Thank you for everything that you do for the show. Before we get started, I'm going to say that I normally edit out explicit content. 
But because the story was filled with so much anger and vitriol, I'm going to leave the explicit language in because of the context in which things are said really impact this particular story. So consider yourselves warned, we are going to have some words here. And don't listen with your little kids around. Let's get on with today's show. Number 100. This is a story that we voted on in the Facebook group. I listed a few options in a poll, and this story was the one that received the most votes. I think I'm going to take a different approach to this one, though. I mean, not that different, but the thing about this case is that it's not exactly all that cut and dry. There are two sides to every story, but this is one where I watched two different documentaries and it was as if they weren't even talking about the same crime. Some elements were similar, but both of them left out parts of the case that lead to a bias in each one that diverge in completely opposite directions. So it's going to almost feel like two different stories by the time we're finished. But I want to try to tell both of them as we go along. Is everything factual? Probably not. This is a he said, she said kind of a thing. And because this is California dreaming, you know that someone's not going to be able to give their side because they're dead. In this 100th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Dan and Betty Broderick. Elizabeth Ann Basiglia, Betty as she was known by, was born November 7, 1947, in Eastchester, a suburb of New York City, and if I said that wrong, my apologies, one of six children to parents Frank and Marita. Dad was hardworking. Mom kept busy with the brood of half a dozen children. They were devout Catholics. The priorities in the home were simple. Follow the rules of the church, follow the rules of life, and get your education. After graduating high school, Betty went to Mount St. Vincent College, staying close to home, finishing up with her degree in early childhood education. Though what Betty was taught that her path in life should and would be was to be a wife and mother, which I guess such a degree would come in handy. Guided by both having attended an all-girls Catholic school, including an all-girls college, and by the teachings of her parents and mirroring the ambitions of her peers, too, that's what Betty grew up dreaming of, wifehood and motherhood. Despite a college degree, her choices in life were going to be slim. Betty lived at home right up until her wedding day, which had to be a man who was also bound by the laws of the Catholic Church, who would be willing to be the breadwinner while the wife cared for the house and children. That might not sound all that great to us now, but those were the times, and it is what Betty wanted. So for the first time, Betty was given permission by her parents to go out of town with friends to attend a University of Notre Dame football game in South Bend, Indiana in 1965 when she was 17. And it would be at this event that she would meet Daniel Broderick III. He was three years older than Betty, tall, skinny, cute, and Catholic. Born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he was a pre-med student at Notre Dame. Dan introduced himself by jotting down his name on a napkin, and he wrote the letters MDA next to it. Medical doctor, almost. 
He had actually just been accepted to Cornell Medical School, and from there, Betty and Dan quickly fell in love. Dan being at Cornell, which looks like it's in central New York, though I can't seem to get a clear-cut answer from the interwebs as to what is or isn't upstate New York, but either way, she's basically in New York City, and he is northwest at Cornell. I don't think it's upstate, nor do I think everything outside of Long Island and New York is upstate either, so message me if you want to let me know or post it on Facebook to clear things up. So both of these young people, it was like kismet from day one. They both had ambitions and dreams for the future. They both were devout to their Catholicism. Both of their families seemed to be loving and accepting of one another, as they both seemed to be raised with the same ideals. So on April 12, 1969, after about four years of courtship, Betty became Mrs. Daniel Broderick. They honeymooned in the Caribbean, and this would be a trip that the relationship would be consummated for the first time, and Betty would become pregnant with their first child. On a documentary I watched, it was said that Betty described their first sexual encounter with Dan as bordering on rape. And I kind of thought that was an aggressive way of portraying it. But you know, this is something she would say many years down the road while attempting to paint a mosaic of what their marriage was like in hindsight. I can't make any assumptions as to what their first night together was like, but if it was the first time for both of them, I don't know if it was for Dan, but it was for Betty, I'm sure it was a pretty emotionally charged experience. So Betty returned home from her honeymoon pregnant with their first child, a daughter they named Kim, born in 1970, followed by a second daughter, Lee, born in 1971. A son, Daniel, was born in 1976, and Rhett was born in 1979. The couple also suffered the loss of one baby who died two days after birth, as well as two miscarriages. Following the birth of eldest daughter Kim, Dan finished up his MD at Cornell, and from there he decided he wasn't quite finished with school. Why just be Dr. Dan Broderick when you can be Dr. Dan Broderick attorney at law? Yep, he got into Harvard Law School. And while he was doing that, it would be Betty who took over as the breadwinner. She's obviously looking to the future. Once Dan is done, he will have all the degrees and she can settle back into her role as stay-at-home wife and mom. And the hard work would all pay off in the end. So Betty worked, hard, and multiple jobs, and took care of the house and kids while Dan put his efforts into his law degree, which he would eventually earn. So with a medical degree in one hand and a law degree in the other, it was easy for Dan to find an excellent job, which he did at a law firm in San Diego, California, and the whole family relocated to Southern California. Betty still worked, doing things like selling Avon and Tupperware. She also obtained her real estate license in 1979, and she taught classes at the local church, but still remained fully devoted to the family. And before long, Dan became more prominent as a malpractice attorney, so Betty was soon able to focus solely on the family, and all of their hard work 
on both of their parts would be paying off. Betty quickly became the neighborhood supermom. Dan may have had all of the distinction as the doctor and the attorney, eventually branching off into his own private practice, but that certainly did not take away from Betty's contributions to the family structure. She too was intelligent and vibrant, and she remained steadfastly devoted to maintaining the perfect family and an environment where the family of six would flourish. It took about five years in order for the couple to reach that point, and it should not be forgotten that Betty was never one to not be willing, able, and motivated to contribute to the family if she needed to. She had her eye on the prize, and she had always been willing to work for it. But once she began staying home full-time and Dan was becoming a prominent player in the world of litigation, their worlds began to diverge. Dan was, I guess, kind of growing an ego. I don't know. I guess with the background that he had in medicine and law, why wouldn't he, right? But it seemed to kind of border on the verge of an obsession with him. Networking for him was vital in his line of work as a malpractice attorney, and how he presented himself began to consume him, fitting in with the social circles among San Diego's top attorneys was imperative to his career. This also included the manner in which Dan dressed. He filled his closet with all the finest suits. And I did read one article that reported that Betty and the kids were relegated to discount clothing stores and having to go to laundromats while Dan had all of his fine suits dry cleaned and pressed professionally. I don't know if that's true or not, or if it's a story coming from one side. But it also seemed as though Dan was spending less and less time at home, leaving for work really early each day and not returning home until late at night. And this was attributed to Dan's apparent social networking with other attorneys and associates, which also included a fair amount of drinking as well. I did read that though some of that going out with the drinking buddies networking stuff kind of tapered off when he launched his own private practice, his reputation did continue to grow, as did the family income. And the more Dan rose in the ranks when it came to San Diego's attorneys, it appeared as though Betty continued to slowly lose her own identity, which can happen, and we've talked about this in the past. When you become so consumed with family that you forget who you are outside of them, and if something should go awry and they're suddenly not there, your identity evaporates too. And I do believe over the years of marriage to Dan, along with the four children, that Betty became lost. But I don't ever think she thought she was going to ever have to be any more than Mrs. Dan Broderick. I really think she thought that they were going to be forever. Dan had a hold on the malpractice lawsuit market in San Diego with his combination law and medical background. It didn't take long for him to start turning down six-figure settlements, but in the background, the Broderick marriage began showing cracks. Dan's career took center stage. At least, that's what appeared to be happening from Betty's perspective. Fights would regularly erupt when Betty would feel as though Dan was putting his family second to everything else 
and they would also argue about finances. And this was not like most couples who fight over not having enough money, but rather how each of them spent their money. Dan would apparently get upset at any lavish purchases that Betty would make, but he was free to spend on anything he saw fit, as it would be things that he needed as a person of his stature and in his profession. Dan's wardrobe was central to his identity and the image that he wanted to put forth. People close to the Brodericks at this time have described Dan as cold and unfriendly and that Betty was intimidated by him. Friends and neighbors have said that they noticed as soon as it came time for Dan to be expected home that Betty would start panicking, trying to get the house all in order, all the kids' things picked up because it would be upsetting to him if he came home to a mess. Friends said that Betty was a different person when Dan was around and that she seemed to fear him. Now, dreamers, I'm not saying that I don't believe these perceptions of their relationship, but I'm not as quick to buy into her side versus his side of the story purely based on the fact that we know how the story is going to end. I've also read articles and watched documentaries that left me feeling that Betty felt as though she had a solid place in the household. She was the one who brought home the bacon when Dan was pursuing his law degree. She handled the kids, the house, everything. They fought, and I didn't get the impression that she was some wilting flower because she pushed back. I didn't really see her as the subservient, weak partner in the marriage. Was Dan's ego getting a little on the inflated side? Yeah, probably. But what I do think was going on, if those on the outside perceived Dan as being some sort of cold, angry, unfriendly person, my best guess is that he was growing increasingly unhappy and dissatisfied with his marriage to Betty. Right or wrong, we can't help how we feel, right? I am very close to someone who used to be in an unhappy marriage like this. She had the stay-at-home mom dream too, which is essentially what she had. But what ended up happening was all this resentment started brewing on her husband's part towards her. And there was never going to be any amount of tidying up of the house or home-cooked meals being prepared on the table that was going to change how he felt coming home every night. It wasn't about how clean the house was or how the children were behaving or how much time she spent at the store that day. Those were just the excuses to pick fights because the marriage was unhappy. He's unhappy. He knows he's going to have to come home to a wife he's drifting away from. He's going to find reasons to fight. And this can go both ways, but this is just the scenario here that I'm seeing between Dan and Betty. He just doesn't love her anymore. And that can come off as cold and detached. Then Dan began becoming concerned with his looks. Having worn glasses his whole life, he swapped those out for contacts. He changed his hairstyle and he got a nose job. All the while, Betty's trudging forward in her role as supermom. The kids were in the best schools. She always made sure they were at the center of the social circles, not just hers, but the kids too. They were in all the activities. They knew all the kids in the neighborhood. Betty threw the best birthday parties and for every holiday too. Later on, Betty would say, 
all of this was a dream come true because that's what she was raised to believe wholeheartedly. Marry a man who is the provider for you and all your children, and it was her job to be beautiful, keep the beautiful home, stay active in the community as well as the church, focus on raising your children into productive adults, becoming grandparents, and growing old together. To Betty, everything they did, they did as a unit. But she would say later on that it was never that way for Dan. He saw everything as belonging to him. That is what Betty feels his only focus was, his business and his money. That might have been true. That might have been what he told her. But Dan was definitely open to having a love interest in his life. It just wasn't Betty. So it's late 1982. Some reports have said that it's closer to 1983, but either way, Dan and Betty have now been married for 13 years. He's 38, she's 35. They have the four children. At this point, they're aged 12, 11, 6, and 3. Dan and Betty were attending a party being hosted by some of Dan's attorney friends, and that's when Dan first saw a pretty young blonde named Linda Kolkina, and that's spelled K-O-L-K-E-N-A, and she was of Dutch origins from what I read. As Betty stood next to Dan, she overheard him whisper to a colleague, Isn't she beautiful? Apparently, Betty was taken aback by the remark, as Dan had never been one to behave that way. And I have to say, if that is true... Betty was somewhat out of touch or in serious denial because I don't find it shocking at all that the average man would find a pretty girl pretty. What I did find a bit off-putting is that he would say that in the presence of his wife. That should have been a red flag right there for Betty. The fact that he cared so little about her feelings that he would be making remarks like that without any hesitation within earshot of her. But I also wouldn't be surprised if Betty's mindset was so deeply buried underneath everything that she and Dan had worked so hard for all those years, from putting him through school, scraping by four kids, and then finally arriving at that level of success that they had been aiming for, that Betty would have never in a million years thought Dan would turn his back on what they had. What she didn't seem to take into consideration was Dan's narcissistic tendencies. She didn't see it because she viewed them as a unit. Dan wasn't the successful malpractice attorney. They were Dr. and Mrs. Dan Broderick, the malpractice attorney and the woman by his side. Dan didn't quite see it that way. He did all the work. He did all the schooling. He passed all the exams. This was 100% all him. How much or how little he took Betty's support over the years into consideration seemed to be inconsequential. He got to a point where he outgrew the need to feel obliged or beholden to her, which is a really sad place to wind up, especially if you did the journey together. But when he looks one way at Betty, they're rounding 40, they've got 13 years into an increasingly unhappy marriage and four kids, 
And he looks the other way at the 21-year-old, fresh-faced, no-kids-having blonde beauty. I mean, you want what you want. To heck with obligation, loyalty, vows, etc. And if he's already falling out of love with Betty, meeting Linda pushed him over the edge. Now, Linda had just been fired from her job as a flight attendant with Delta Airlines, apparently for sitting on the lap of a male passenger, which resulted in complaints from several other passengers. I also read in an online forum that she was fired for having sex with a passenger in flight, but I don't know if that's true or just conjecture, but either way, she was canned. She was at that party because she was kind of freelancing as an assistant for another attorney, despite the fact that she had not a shred of paralegal experience, nor did she have any experience in the field of medical malpractice insurance. And I even read an article that she couldn't even type. And this was the 80s, and typing was basically the only thing you needed to know how to do when working in an office. But whatever Betty may have thought when Dan remarked how beautiful she was, it seemed, for the time being, that she would let it pass. She figured Dan would too. And boy, was she wrong. Dan hired Linda, with all the non-existent legal experience, to be his new assistant. Betty had her suspicions, but until she had some solid proof that there was something to be worried about, she was going to try to not allow her paranoia to take over. And apparently, Betty's friends were like, girl, he would never cheat on you. Famous last words, right? But Betty kept picking up on little clues and hints that only fueled her suspicions. That summer of 1983, a few months after Linda was hired as Dan's assistant, Betty, Dan, and the kids took a vacation to New York. There was an incident where Dan had snuck off to a private area in the hotel lobby where they had phones, and she caught him on the phone with Linda. And then, later on in the year, the family vacationed in Europe. And while there, Dan had sent flowers to Linda. So this caused Betty to begin pestering Dan about Linda. She did it a lot. And knowing the direction that this marriage was headed, which was pretty much in a tailspin, Betty's incessant questioning regarding the nature of Dan's relationship with Linda is only going to make things worse. Which it did, in this case anyway. Betty's irritating him. She's getting under his skin. And at this point, he's probably already not liking his wife very much, if at all. So all the needling him about what's going on with Linda is probably only going to push him straight into Linda's arms, which is essentially where Dan is wanting to be anyway. It's been said that Dan made Betty feel like women were lined up just waiting for a chance to be the next Mrs. Broderick. I could kind of see him taking that stance with it. Again, this is a story told from two different sides, so it all depends on who you're talking to. Dan did continue to insist nothing was going on with Linda, or any other woman for that matter. Betty wasn't fully convinced, and finally by the fall of 1983, she decided to do a little investigating. She phoned up one of Dan's paralegals at his office and asked her if she knew if anything was going on between Dan and Linda. 
Dan's employee denied knowing anything about it, but it's been said that because she really didn't want to get into the middle of anything, she didn't say anything. But when she told Dan about the call and suggested that he needed to come clean with his wife, Dan reportedly fired her. Now, I did watch the made-for-TV movie about this case, 1992's A Woman Scorned, the Betty Broderick story, and I realize a lot of that junk is fictionalized and dramatized, but in that telling of this incident, Dan's paralegal, who had been employed with him longer than Linda, confronted him about why is it that Linda had her own office and made more money and generally enjoyed more perks at the job while she had been there longer. And Dan's response was she was just a secretary and that Linda is his legal assistant and she does work with clients on his behalf and needs the privacy of her own office. Well, the secretary shot back and said she can't even type. And I did read that in multiple articles that Linda was really underqualified for the work that she was supposedly doing. But at that point in the movie, the secretary told Dan that he needed to reevaluate the way that he treated people and she quit. So I'm not sure which version is accurate. So anyway, meanwhile, Betty's suspicions seem to be driving her mad. She was constantly badgering Dan, picking fights, even throwing around threats of divorce, though it's believed that those threats were empty. The movie portrays her as being really over the top with her temper and outbursts and fighting, even in front of the children. And Dan purportedly continued his denials and began accusing Betty of being crazy at the same time. And while all of this is going on at home, Dan is more and more enjoying his time at work, away from Betty's incessant hassling, and he's growing closer with Linda. At what point in time the two really began getting serious isn't really clear, but like I said, Betty's behavior is likely to have expedited the process. And it was obvious to everyone, with the exception of Betty, that Linda and Dan were slowly cultivating a pretty close relationship. And I say with the exception of Betty, because she did not even consider for a minute that Linda had anything on her 16 years and four kids with Dan. I believe it was Betty's mindset that she made Dan into the man that he became. He was nothing without her and he would be nothing without her and that he could not survive without her. And I believe she really thought that never in a million years would Dan leave her and everything that they built together for Linda, a kid practically, that knew nothing, that was nothing, and had nothing. Would Dan throw everything away that he had with Betty for a sweet, pretty, charming young woman who was really into him? Yeah, Betty wouldn't even entertain the thought. Still feeling that she might be a little insecure, Betty decided to speak to a therapist about her fears of Dan's possible infidelity, thinking that it might help. Now, Betty got to a place where she decided to make an attempt at a romantic gesture. And I'm not sure if it was at the suggestion of her therapist, but, you know, if Betty and Dan were constantly bickering, it may have been suggested to her or she may have come up with the idea on her own. Whatever the case was, Betty decided to give it a try. But 
it ended up backfiring on her badly. And it only compounded the suspicions that she had been having about Dan and Linda. Betty had decided to surprise Dan at his office on his 39th birthday with a dozen roses and a bottle of champagne. When she arrived, the receptionist, well, I guess maybe she was trying not to let on as to what was really happening, first tried to explain that Dan was out, but not really sure where he was. Betty also noticed that nobody was in Linda's office either, but she did spy hanging on the wall above Linda's chair a portrait of Dan as a teenager, which is a really weird thing to have in your office if you're just somebody's assistant, right? I can't even imagine what went through Betty's mind at that point, but she decided to go into Dan's office and wait for him. And when she opened the door, she found the remnants of a small, private birthday celebration. Balloons, half-eaten chocolate cake, and two empty wine glasses. So she decided to sit there and wait for the two of them to return, but they never did, and Betty had waited for hours. In a rage, Betty drove home, went inside, stormed up the stairs, grabbed Dan's most prized possessions, his expensive suits, and while her four children stood by, she made several trips from the closet to the backyard, piles of his suits in her arms. She tossed them onto the barbecue. She poured an accelerant all over the clothing and lit everything on fire. As Dan's suits went up in flames, his children looked on and they cried. When Dan arrived home to find what Betty had done, an argument between the couple did not ensue. He was subdued and quiet. He spoke very little, continuing to not only deny that there was nothing going on between him and Linda, but also everything going on in Betty's head were figments of her imagination. Betty wasn't believing him this time, though she tried to put it out of her mind, telling herself there's no way he'd lower himself from what he had with Betty to a nothing like Linda. But the way that she was interpreting Dan's behaviors and his actions, it was all continuing to point to Linda Coquina being a very real problem. Not only that, Betty began to think that Dan was purposely provoking her, as she had said there were times that she would hear Dan whispering Linda's name while they slept, or at least pretended to sleep. Though whether he was doing this on purpose, if he was doing it in his sleep, or if this is just another accusation made by Betty, we can't be certain. So on the final day of February of 1984, it was a leap year, so the 29th, Dan finally fessed up. He was having an affair with Linda. Though he wasn't looking to work through it with Betty, he wasn't going to apologize. He wanted to separate. The timing was kind of convenient, I guess, because at the time, the Brodericks had to move out of the Coral Reef home to a rental in nearby La Jolla because there was a crack in the foundation of their house and they needed to be out in order for the repairs to be made. Talk about a metaphor of their lives together, right? 
Well, Dan decided at that time that he did not want to go on like that anymore and that he was going to go ahead and live amongst the construction work at the family home while Betty and the children stayed at the rental. Of course, Betty angrily objected to the separation, but Dan was adamant he was moving back. Besides, she was clearly miserable in the marriage, as was he. Wouldn't this be best for all parties involved? Maybe for him, but for Betty, she wasn't just losing a grip on her marriage. In her mind, she was losing her entire identity. Betty, as an individual, a person standing independent of being Mrs. Dan Broderick, wife and supermom, that Betty no longer existed. Dan moved out and back into the family home alone. Now here again, the story diverges depending on who you're talking to. It's been said that Dan completely transformed the home the way he wanted it decorated, as everything up to that point had been done by Betty. Betty has said that Dan flat out refused to have any visitation with the children, but others have said that Dan was very devoted to his children and even felt that not having to be subjected to his and Betty's constant battling was the best thing for them. Now, it's been reported that following the separation, now Betty started dropping the children off at the house one by one in an effort to try and supposedly force visits on him. Now, I don't know if I believe that Dan didn't want to have anything to do with his kids because by all accounts, the children were close with their dad, at least up to this point. And despite Dan's demanding work schedule, he made sure to set aside time for them. But at the same time, he was actively having an extramarital affair. And how much of his time away from home was for work or for Linda, we really can't say, but one thing was certain. It was clear to the Broderick children that both of their parents were miserable at home. So Betty started dropping the kids off, and it's my understanding there was at least one occasion where nobody was home and the child was made to wait on the porch for about an hour. Eventually, all four kids were with Dan. Betty's intention was to use them to prove to Dan that he would never survive taking care of them at this time they were 14, 13, 8, and 5. So yeah, that's a handful for anybody. More so for a guy like Dan with a substantial workload. But his solution was simple. He hired babysitters. Because when you have a substantial workload, you have substantial resources. So that not only epically backfired on Betty, she was now without custody of her kids. And Dan is going to use his influence as an attorney to make sure she regretted it. This was war. And to make matters worse, Dan was now free to begin pursuing a relationship with Linda. This whole entire ordeal began sending a now alone and scorned Betty into a downward spiral, filled with rage and vengeance to a point that it became all-consuming for her. Betty simply could not come to grips that she had lost her husband to this woman who she saw as a floozy, a homewrecker, and I'm sure a bevy of choice words that Betty liked to spat in referring to Linda. 
If Betty's anger hadn't already reached a fever pitch, it was about to completely explode as Dan and Linda went public with their relationship. And this added a whole new level of humiliation for Betty. Not too long after the budding relationship became public knowledge amongst their friends and Dan's colleagues, Betty was officially served with divorce papers. And that's when Betty launched her revenge campaign. Friends of Betty's began seeing a significant shift in her as she began fighting back against Dan and the new woman in his life, a woman she perceived as being Dan's replacement for her. Now, this is not really a description of Linda I'm a big fan of, a replacement, because that insinuates Dan is trying to fill Betty's place in his life. I don't think he was attempting to do that, because nothing was going to change the fact that she was and always would be the mother of his children. The couple had fallen out of love, and neither one of them seemed to be doing anything to work at fixing it. The couple had not been getting along for quite some time. What Betty was acting like, we can only go by what she has said, what friends close to the couple have said, and what her children have said. And it seems like it wasn't pretty. Whatever the case, Dan was retreating from the relationship for quite some time. Either he was spending longer hours at work, or spending more time with his fraternity of lawyer friends, and eventually becoming close with Linda. He was escaping the unhappiness of his home. Was he right to engage in an extramarital affair? I'll never feel that that's okay. But he certainly isn't the first person to stray, and he certainly won't be the last. But I can't say Betty was doing much to help make home feel more like a welcoming, warm, peaceful, or loving place. Is there anything that she could have done differently to have changed the course of their marriage? I don't know. But if what she said about Dan's feelings towards her, that she was old, fat, ugly, and boring, there is only so much a woman can do to overcome that. Had Dan turned into a narcissistic asshole who felt Betty no longer fit the mold of what he wanted in a woman or felt that he deserved? Yeah, could be. It's a fine line to walk here, us on the outside looking in, trying to figure out who's to blame or who's more to blame when it comes to something like this. Because I've said throughout thus far, there's always two sides. Those of us who have had friends who have gone through divorce, where we've been friends with both the husband and the wife, you kind of get stuck in the middle. Many of us have been there. We choose a side to align ourselves with. Sometimes we stay out of it. Whatever the case, the hurt is tremendous on all sides, and it's really sad. As for Betty and Dan, I'm all over the place as to how I feel. Not long after Betty was served the divorce papers, she began committing acts of vandalism at Dan's home. She had gone by the house one afternoon to see the kids, and while she was glancing around, she saw a fresh-baked Boston cream pie on the kitchen counter, apparently a favorite of Dan's. 
She questioned his housekeeper, at which point Betty learned it was Linda who brought it by. Betty picked it up, brought it upstairs, and smeared the pie all over Dan's bed and clothes hanging in the closet. Mind you, this is with her children in the house. When Dan got home, he saw what she had done. His kids told him it was mom. And the following day, Dan filed for and was granted a restraining order against Betty. Now remember, this is the family home that Dan is residing in at the time. So Betty is super infuriated at the fact that she's being ordered to stay out of what she considered to be her house. Her rage was off the charts. Two days after receiving the order to stay away, she went by and threw a wine bottle through the front window. When police were called, according to a report I read, they refused to get involved in what they considered to be bickering amongst bored rich people with nothing better to do. Which seems like a mild response to me, considering Dan had the restraining order. But different times, I guess. I suppose cops stayed out of domestic issues and maybe they couldn't prove that it was Betty that did it. But either way, I'm not so sure why the police were so blasé about this. So let it be known that Betty was clearly displaying some very troubling behaviors. It's been described as neurotic, obsessed, fixated, phobic. Betty thought she was going crazy, It's been said that Dan repeatedly told Betty that she was crazy. And many who knew the couple then, who saw the breakdown of the relationship and the ensuing war of the Brodericks, thought too that Betty was losing it. And us here, looking at this case now, may feel the same way. That Betty was in the throes of a massive mental and emotional breakdown. To Betty, her whole world was being pulled out from under her. Let's not forget how hard Betty worked to see Dan through medical school and law school. All the years that she devoted to seeing her husband rise to the top of his game to finally be able to get him into a place where she could sit back and be the suburban housewife and mother that she dreamt of being, only to have it all given to Linda. At least that's how Betty saw it. Once Betty was out... Linda slipped right into her life with her husband in her house with her children. Linda was living the dream Betty built. Linda was hosting all the family events. Linda was having company over for their backyard barbecues. Linda was on Dan's arm at all the high society functions, the parties, the galas. That was Betty's. And Linda took it from her. Betty has stated in interviews since that if Dan had been honest with her from the beginning, she would have coped better. But instead, he played games, making her think she was crazy. And he seemed to like the fact that he was driving her mad. She said this in an interview. I had no desire to leave my home, marriage, and children. If he had been discreet, He could have kept Linda, but he was trying to force me into divorcing him so he could always appear to be the good guy. He maneuvered us into a rental house and a rental car, both in his name, 
and he ended up with our house and the equity. The master manipulator of money, truth, people, courts, facts. It was very scary. Now, dreamers, I don't know if I necessarily believe that Betty would have handled this any better if it had been presented to her in any other way. She seemed predisposed to being a bit unhinged. It was only a matter of being triggered. There is also no way that I'm going to believe that Betty would have been willing to sit idly by while Dan discreetly had an affair with Linda because Betty had no intentions of breaking up the family because of the infidelity. I think she would have raised hell every single time Dan walked through the front door, whether he had just been with Linda or not. Dan may have been a massive jerk, and maybe he deserved to come home to the wrath of his wife because of his actions, but he definitely did not have to put up with it if he didn't want to, and he wasn't going to, and he didn't. Betty and Dan were about to embark on one of the most vicious divorce proceedings San Diego had ever seen because of Dan's prominence as a powerful attorney in the area, and the feuding between the couple was less than discreet. And what ended up happening was when Betty began to seek out a divorce attorney to take her case, she was met with so many obstacles. All the best divorce and property attorneys, well, they were all Dan's BFFs. Dan had also once been appointed as president of the San Diego County chapter of the American Bar Association, so he definitely had some influence all over the place. The first person Betty sought out to represent her in divorce proceedings was a mutual friend of hers and Dan's, but he politely declined, saying that he had recently been elected judge and he would not be accepting any new clients. But she later on came to find out that this friend was already representing Dan, at least in the early stages of the divorce. Betty was unable to retain anyone in the San Diego area willing to work with her, a.k.a. go up against Dan Broderick, so she eventually had to look north to an attorney who worked out of Beverly Hills named Daniel Jaffe that was willing to take her on as a client. And Jaffe may have started regretting taking on Betty as a client almost from the start. The biggest issue from the onset was Betty's vandalizing Dan's home. And he tried to tell her if she kept doing this, she was going to do some serious damage to her case. She also verbally attacked Dan every time he came by to drop the kids off in full view of all of her neighbors and not to mention the children who were often driven to tears at the sight of their mother screaming obscenities at their father in such a manner. But despite the warnings from her attorney to exercise a measure of composure and decorum, Betty continued to repeatedly defy the order of the court for her to stay away from Dan's property. After the incident where Betty threw that bottle through his window, he went back to court and motion for what's called an order to show cause. In the year following the smashed window, he used that order to have Betty brought back into court to go before a judge to explain herself and why she should not be held in contempt for violating the terms of the restraining order. The first order to show cause was initiated from the Boston cream pie incident, 
then the broken window. And eventually, other incidents cited included throwing a toaster, destroying a stereo, breaking a mirror in Dan's bedroom, more broken windows, among a laundry list of other things that Betty did to violate the restraining order. No matter how small the incident, Dan would have Betty back in court. Some people think it's petty. I don't. I think it's documenting. For the life of me, I can't understand why Betty was only ever tossed in jail twice for violations. Maybe nobody ever took her for a serious threat. If they only knew, right? You see, Betty wasn't up against any old run-of-the-mill husband here. She was up against a very powerful, commanding, and influential litigator in Dan Broderick. He knew the system really well, and he knew exactly what he needed to do in order for every motion to be granted in his favor. And this included the meticulous documentation of every single thing that Betty did, not to mention the recording of every one of Betty's venomous, profane phone calls. When it came time to make the cases for their divorce, Dan was armed with so much dirt on Betty, it destroyed her in court. He would go on to tell the divorce judge that she smashed holes in walls with a hammer. She bashed up his answering machine. She broke the sliding glass doors. She spray-painted the walls in several rooms as well as the fireplace. She smashed the TV. This list was absolutely devastating. But Betty did that. Betty's attorney told her that this had to stop, otherwise he would not be able to represent her, that he would rather try and work the divorce and the finances out as opposed to trying to keep Betty from being sent to jail all the time. And as far as what was going on in Betty's life, she had hit a particularly low point by the Christmas of 1985 when the holiday was the first time she'd ever spent it alone without her children. Linda and Dan had taken the kids on a vacation for the holiday and it really hit Betty hard, compounding her sadness and her loneliness. Whatever was going on in Betty's head as the holiday joy swirled around her, it seemed as though she became overwhelmed with anger again. She went over and broke into Dan's house and ripped open every gift that was for Linda and threw the presents across the living room. She then threw an object at the living room mirror and shattered that into a thousand shards. What ended up happening was a years-long divorce court battle that was essentially a series of complicated legal motions and maneuvers directed by Dan's legal team. After an eight-day-long trial, the Broderick marriage was finally no more as of January of 1989. Dan has often been portrayed as this Goliath of an attorney, a conniving man who used his prominence to use the court, the attorneys, and the judge as his puppets to take the fullest advantage of every possible loophole that he could find to come out on top in these divorce proceedings. That may have been the case, but Betty certainly wasn't doing herself any favors with her violent and irrational behavior. As one article I read so aptly put it, every time Betty lost it, Dan was right there ready to hand her a shovel to keep digging her own grave deeper. 
Some years later, Betty would say in an interview, he was a professional arguer. He loved putting the other side down. He loved winning and humiliating and torturing the other side, even beyond winning. He was always proud of seeking punitive damages as a personal assault on the other side, not covered by insurance. I was just another victim of his. And I don't know what to make of that statement. I mean, yeah, those are the same qualities that afforded them the good life of luxury that she had been a part of at least some of the time. And yeah, infidelity hurts and the breakdown of a marriage is never a good time. But if Betty could have just been able to seek some help, as she seemed to have some serious emotional mental issues going on, if she could have just kept her cool, cut her losses, and looked towards what she could have taken away from the marriage instead of what she was losing, she could have taken him to the cleaners with the right attorney. But she kept shooting herself in the foot, over and over and over again. And what of this Betty referring to herself as a victim? It feels a little off to me, but I'm not quite sure because it's hard to say exactly how cunning and ruthless Dan really was throughout the end of the marriage, through the affair, and for the duration of the years-long divorce battles. Dan was making all these maneuvers, yes, but Betty was right there with an attack of her own, whether it be profanity-laden phone calls, using the children as pawns and leverage, or breaking into his home and destroying his property. It's just Dan's so-called attacks were going to pay off for him in the end. Betty's were going to make her out to look like she wasn't exactly playing with a full deck. I did ask for some of your opinions on Betty Broderick in the Facebook group, And just like I'm feeling all over the place with it here, your comments appear to be all over the place there too. And I'm going to go over what all of you had to say towards the end of this episode. So shortly after the Christmas vandalism committed by Betty, Dan had decided he had had enough of the coral reef home that he had once shared with her. He needed to send the message loud and clear that once he moved, Betty would have absolutely no claim on the house whatsoever. This would be his, all his, and he would make it all his own. Now this whole thing is what Betty would say is Dan selling her house without her permission. Now I'm not exactly clear on what or how Dan was able to do that. I'm pretty sure he used some of his legal connections to get this done. I'll explain it the best I can in a few minutes. There was this thing that he did. But it is my understanding that Betty was given her fair share of the proceeds. Either that or he put the money into getting a place for her and the kids to stay. Whatever the case, Dan was obligated to provide support for Betty. And I've heard that at some point it was going to be upwards of $16,000 a month until she remarried for a certain duration of time but I've also heard that Betty was royally screwed at the end now back in the 80s $16,000 was nothing to turn your nose up at but I really don't know how much of this is really about the money if Betty felt like she was owed more than that or if she just didn't care because she was still hell bent on hanging on to her anger and resentment towards Dan for leaving her for Linda 
Whatever the case, Dan knew that he was going to hear it from Betty once he sold the house and purchased one independent of her for the first time in his life. He tried to be ready for what was coming. The selling of their home that they built together was a severe blow to an already emotionally battered Betty. It was literally the last thing that they had together that represented the life that they had once had, all of which she perceived having lost to Linda. And Betty did not use friendly words in talking about Linda. I'm going to try to keep the name calling to a minimum, but at some points it's just unavoidable, especially if you want to get a true portrait of what Betty was like in terms of not only what she was saying, but also to whom she was saying it to. Betty did what she could to halt the sale of the family home, including refusing to agreeing for it to be put on the market and sold. But Dan was able to sidestep her roadblocks by using his legal magic wand to obtain a court order that allowed him to sell the family home without her consent. A court-appointed proxy signed all of the necessary documents in place of Betty, effectively selling the home, all before Betty even realized what had happened. And even though Betty received her share from the sale, she was furious when she found out Dan had circumvented her completely and sold the house right out from under her. So in an act of vengeance, Betty got behind the wheel of her Chevy Suburban and rammed her vehicle into the front door of Dan's new home. This time, the usually even-tempered Dan finally lost it. He reportedly made his way through the wreckage that was now his front door, pulled Betty out of the Suburban, and began attacking her. Police were called to the scene, and they ended up taking Betty away in a straitjacket. She was brought into the mental institution and she was combative the entire time, kicking and fighting and screaming and crying and refusing to allow doctors to treat her, who were really trying to sedate her. Betty would remain there for three days for observation, the whole time claiming that Dan was the crazy one. Things did not get any better once she got out, as she was slapped with a flurry of more orders to show cause, sending Betty sinking deeper and deeper into her already unstable state of mind. Following this incident with Betty having driven her car into Dan's house, they had a court hearing set, but Betty was either not willing or not able to attend. She had by this time fired her attorney and she did not show up for court. So in her absence, the judge found her to be in default of all property and custody and he pretty much awarded Dan everything, including the custody of the four children. He upheld the restraining order, and he also ordered no visitation for Betty with the kids until she underwent psychiatric treatment. Betty was awarded alimony in the amount of $9,000 a month until they got to the finalization of the divorce, which I've already discussed happened over eight days in January of 1989, but we're going to come back to that again. Now, looking at what's been going on between Dan and Betty up to this point, it has us wondering, what's Betty's endgame? She's refusing to give up on what she feels is rightfully hers, and that includes Dan and the marriage. She's refused to abide by the restraining orders, and she is doing everything within her power to stand in Dan's way in his efforts to move on. 
So why? What did Betty think all of this was going to lead to? Those who knew her think that she was hell-bent on causing Dan to suffer as much grief and misery as he caused her. But it is possible that she thought that somehow she was going to intimidate him into coming back? Could she have been that delusional? Who knows? Because this woman was driven to make this man utterly miserable. There just didn't seem to be any end to it in sight. It was at least three, as many as four years of constant stalking, harassing, and vandalizing aimed at Dan, and it escalated after he purchased his new home and after the divorce was finalized. And along with all of this, Betty launched an incessant, obscene phone call campaign that was directed towards Linda more than Dan, as she knew Linda was frequently over at Dan's place. Betty would call the house all hours of the day and night, leaving obscene tirades, much of it the kids would overhear. Because it's an answering machine. When it records, it plays out loud, and when you play it back, it plays out loud. Nothing stopped Betty. Not the presence of her kids, not any court orders, not even being tossed in jail for a night or two. I did read an article that said Linda the target of most of the diatribes, would just laugh it off. I did read an interesting blog post about this story that had a different take on Linda and Dan and Betty because Linda wasn't exactly all innocent in this whole thing, reportedly, and I want to go over it, but I think I'm going to save it for a little bit later so I don't want to get ahead of myself here. We will circle back to Linda's role in poking the bear and all of this as well. But Linda may have been laughing off Betty's antics, but this was not funny. Not only was this a very serious problem, this was also very, very detrimental to the children caught in the middle of all of this. And as I said, they often heard the recordings filled with words that they'd always been forbidden to use things that they probably couldn't even comprehend, yet they had a really ugly feel to them. You guys may have heard some of the messages played on the various shows and documentaries that you've seen, and you know the made-for-TV movie had to leave out the profanity. And sadly, some of the messages made the children feel as though they were the ones to blame for all the trouble brewing between their parents. As one specific voicemail said, This message is to the fuckhead and the bitch. You have one hell of a nerve dumping the kids here on the sidewalk and zooming away without making any attempt to communicate with me about my plans for the weekend. You make me sick, both of you. I have a good mind to dump the kids back on you and drive away. Call me. We have a lot to talk about, asshole. And come pick up your four children that you're working so hard to have custody of. Congratulations. You can have them. And then there was a 34-minute phone call that was recorded between Betty and her then 11-year-old son, Danny. And you may have heard snippets of that call, too. In it, Danny can be heard accusing his mom of only caring about money, and he asked her to please stop using bad words and to stop tearing the family apart with her jealousy and rage and vulgar diatribes. In one of the clips of the recording, Danny said to his mom, 
You guys are separated, Mom, and he likes somebody else now. He doesn't like you anymore. And I mean, if you got, you got to stop saying the bad words. And then Betty asked him, why doesn't he like me anymore? And he answered, because you've been, he's so sick, because, because you guys get into all these fights. And she asked, why do we get into fights? And he answered, I don't know. And Betty yelled, because he was fucking his secretary. And Danny replied, even before that, you got into fights, mom. And Betty answered, I don't think so, Danny. See, you didn't know that he was fucking his secretary for the last two years that we were married. And by this time, you can hear that Danny is crying. We wanted to live with you, but you're just making it harder for all of us who want to live over there. If you just stop saying bad words, everyone would just be happier. At least I know I will. And at another point in the recording, Danny is heard saying, All you care about is your stupid money. You want everything. You want all the kids and all the money and to get rid of Linda. And it's not going to work, Mom. You've been mad long enough. And Betty said, no, I haven't. And then she told Danny in this phone call that she has been angry at his dad and Linda for years and that she's never going to change because she hates daddy. And Danny is continuing to cry. And he said, if you cared about your family, you'd stop using bad words. And she answered, I'm sick of the cunt. And that's one of my least favorite words. And I left it in because I didn't want to diminish the impact of this conversation that Betty is having with her 11-year-old. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine speaking to a child in this manner. And maybe I'm being uptight about this. I don't know. And if you're a parent and you're feeling personally attacked by what I'm saying, I'm sorry. But listening to this recording hurt my heart. For him and his brother and sisters. And dreamers, this is just one of hundreds and hundreds of phone calls. Betty continued, I was the best mommy in the world and the best wife in the world. It's not my fault your father is such a fuckhead. I cared enough about my family to put up with him fucking Linda for two years. He's absolute scum. He cheated and lied You have no reason to be mad at me. I didn't cause any of this. Daddy and the cunt caused all of this. Towards the end of the phone conversation, Betty said to Danny, I wish he would just die and that cunt would get drunk and drive her car off a cliff. All of this would drive a wedge between Betty and her children. Likely the last four people on the face of the planet who would really love her unconditionally. By 1988, the person that Betty had once been was almost unrecognizable. The once lovely and delightful wife and mother had withered away under a torrent of rage and despair. She had become completely unraveled mentally and emotionally, and everything in her life was chaos. And physically, she had packed on about 60 pounds or 27 kilograms. Every time Betty spoke, she was rude, foul-mouthed, and offensive. 
even when she would just be socializing with friends. She was known to be up all night, tormented by everything that was going on inside her own head. She just could not let this go. And when the eight-day divorce trial finally came in January of 1989, Betty had decided to represent herself, and that was a huge mistake, as she was facing Dan, an attorney himself, and his team of attorneys. And altogether, they annihilated Betty. They fought over child custody, money that Dan had advanced to Betty, marital property and alimony. And by this time, only one of their children was over the age of 18, so Betty fought for custody of the three youngest. She wanted $25,000 a month in alimony for 10 years, plus $1 million up front that was not to be taxed. And as for custody, Dan brought up his medical expert who said that Dan should be granted full custody because he found Betty to be completely unhinged with severe emotional problems that would require long-term and intensive therapy. Betty had her own expert who said that Betty would be a fine caregiver to all of her children once the trauma of the divorce passed. Both experts were on the same page about one thing. The Broderick breakdown was wrought with negativity, immaturity, dishonesty, and violence. Many also believe that Dan obliterated Betty financially in the divorce settlement, too, with his powerful army of lawyers. But some attribute what all happened to Betty's own behavior. According to an article I read in the crime library on the Wayback Machine, by the time the divorce went to trial, Betty found out that because of something called Epstein credits, her share of the community marital property had been substantially reduced. So... Epstein credits are provisions under California divorce law, which says that the supporting spouse, which would be Dan, can charge the dependent spouse, which would be Betty, for half of all the community debts accumulated, not from the divorce date, but from the separation date. If there is a substantial amount of time between the separation and the divorce, the dependent spouse, Betty, may actually accumulate enough Epstein credits to effectively cancel out any share of the community property which might be forthcoming had the divorce been finalized immediately after separation. So, in the Broderick's case, because of a series of incidents, legal wrangling, and delay after delay, the time between separation and the divorce was about four years. And when Dan and his team presented an accounting of those interim years, the judge accepted the figures and ruled that Betty actually owed Dan $750,000 in Epstein credits and cash advances, all of which accumulated between the time Dan moved out and the date the divorce became finalized, which was January 30th, 1989. And in the end... By this time, Dan, already a multimillionaire, when all the calculations were parsed out, he was ordered to pay what had been deconstructed all the way down to $30,000. And Dan was awarded full custody of the children. Then in March of 1989, Dan Broderick and Linda Kolkina announced their official engagement. That same month, Betty purchased herself 
a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. She claimed she needed the protection now that she was single and living alone. The engagement, though, seemed likely to have been something Dan and Linda had already set, but just waited until the turmoil of the divorce subsided before going public. Because the engagement wasn't very long, as the couple would go on to tie the knot the following month on April 22nd, 1989. And if you do the math, that would have been exactly 10 days after what would have been the 20th anniversary of Dan and Betty's marriage. Now it is believed that Dan's friends and possibly Linda were so worried about Dan's safety, thinking that Betty was going to crash their wedding, they even suggested that he wear a bulletproof vest. But the wedding went forward without a hitch and without Betty. Following their marriage, Betty made the claim that Linda had sent her taunting packages that contained facial cream and weight loss advertisements. Now, this isn't the only report that I've seen like this. So for me, I have some shades of doubt because it doesn't exactly line up with Linda being worried for Dan's safety. Why provoke someone if you fear they may be capable of homicidal violence? So either the bulletproof vest thing is an exaggeration or the taunting packages are. Meanwhile, it's been reported that Betty carried her gun everywhere with her. Her children seemed to be very well aware of the fact that she was in possession of the gun, and she made no secret of the fact that she had a desire to kill at least Dan. And Betty took shooting lessons. So I am going to end this here and take the rest of the episode over into part two because it's just getting kind of long and I really wanted to try to get this one out as close to on time as possible. But you won't have to wait very long for part two. It's pretty much done. I just need more time to record it. So we will pick back up with the events that followed Dan and Linda's wedding because the wedded bliss would be short-lived. I will also talk about that blog post that I read that I mentioned earlier, as well as all the Facebook comments about my question regarding Betty and the group. So you probably still have time to add your comment, so do that, and I'll include it in part two. And with that, episode 100 is finally a wrap. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There, we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, books that we've read. Whatever you find that you want to share, please come and join us. You can also follow California Dreaming on Twitter and Instagram. And for our birthday shoutouts this week, I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to Karen F. on August 1st, Kim M. and Sarah H. on August 2nd, Jim Goodluck, the host of the Forgotten News podcast, and Linda K. on August 3rd, Haley M., Rhonda L., Lee B., and Kimberly B. on August 5th, Jess H. and Thomas P. on the 6th, and Gloria B. on August 7th. 
Happy birthday to everybody. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and talented hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, to our merchandise store. You can find all the California Dreaming stuff on there with some new designs that I've just uploaded. So take a look at those and get your t-shirt or your mug or your hoodie and take a picture and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you would just like to email us with your feedback or comments or questions, or to just let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. Keep your eyes open for part two of this story. I am your host, Roseanne. And until next time, Sweet dreams.